On the morning of Bloody Sunday, November 21st, 1920, Johnny MacDonald's day began just after 8 o'clock in front of the O'Toole's GA Clubhouse on Seville Place in the heart of Dublin's northern city. O'Toole's represented the place where every strand of MacDonald's life was joined together. He was goalkeeper for the Dublin football team, famed already as the man in the cap. He played football and hurling for O'Toole's. All his friends grew up in the small area of streets around Seven Place, backing up onto the Monto, Dublin's most famous red light district, and stretching down to the docks. He met up with Willie Maher and Michael Lawless, and from there they went to the docks, taking a boat across the River Liffey to the other side. They met Sean Daly and Herbie Conroy at the corner of Westland Row and Denzel Street. Conroy had a sledgehammer underneath his coat. Tom Ennis joined them. MacDonald also knew Ennis from O'Toole's. All of them were members of E Company, 2nd Battalion. All of them were IRA men. The church bells had rang out at nine o'clock when they reached Upper Mount Street. Their plan had been sketched out for them the previous night. Go to 38 Upper Mount Street and kill two British agents. Vinnie Byrne was 19 years old, but already an experienced member of Michael Collins' specially gathered squad, already responsible for a string of hits on British agents and police. This morning's job was part of a web of carefully targeted assaults on agents and spies billeted across the city. Some had been planned for weeks. Others, like this one, hadn't been agreed till the night before. Their targets were Lieutenants Peter Ames and George Bennett. Ames had survived a gas attack during the First World War before he was invalided out of active service with trench foot. His engagement to Millicent Ewing had just been announced in the New York Times the previous day. George Bennett had worked in intelligence during the war in the Netherlands and both men had just moved to Mount Street that Saturday. A maid at the house answered a knock on the door. Byrne asked where Bennett and Ames were sleeping. She directed him toward a room at the front of the house and another at the back. Tom Ennis went to the back room. When the door opened, Ames went for his gun. Hands up, shouted one of the IRA men. Bennett was marched to Ames's room. Both men were made to stand on the bed. Johnny MacDonald stood outside in the hallway. Michael Lawless was on the street keeping watch when he heard someone running towards him from behind. He glanced over his shoulder and saw the uniform. He spun around and pointed his gun at the soldier, leading him up the steps into the house. Inside, Vinnie Byrne had his gun pointed at Ames and Bennett, who were turned to face the wall. It was in these moments he invoked religious ritual at this moment of most intimate killing. The men stood in their pyjamas, their lives over. May the Lord have mercy on your souls, Byrne said. Then I plugged them, he said years later. The autopsy recorded nine bullet wounds to Bennett, two in the head, one on the front of the chest, three in the back, and two wounds in the right forearm. Ames was shot seven times, 
twice in the right armpit, one on the right upper arm, one to the front and one to the right side of the chest, one wound on the back and one wound on the right leg. This was face-to-face -face killing where the battlefield was a bedroom, wrote Dr Anne Dolan, Associate Professor of Modern Irish History at Trinity College Dublin in a brilliant paper entitled Killing and Bloody Sunday, where combat took the form of assassination, where the army was nothing more than a band of very young men without uniforms and often the training to use the weapon in their hands. When the hit squad emerged from the house, the front door was peppered by revolver fire from a window across the street. They scrambled across the road and scattered. Johnny MacDonald made for the river and found someone to row them back across. He was soon back on Seville Place, making for home, where a bag of revolvers lay hidden under the floorboards. Then he would go to Croke Park to stand in goal for Dublin in a football game against Tipperary. What better place to hide than in plain sight. Johnny MacDonald had already experienced conflict as a volunteer during the Easter Rising alongside his brother Paddy at Jacob's factory. Paddy escaped capture at the end. Johnny was interned in Frongoch with 1,800 other volunteers, but returned immediately to action when he returned to Ireland in 1918. Both MacDonalds were stars of a Dublin team that shone like no other Gaelic football team even when they weren't winning. The team was full of Easter Rising veterans and IRA men. Their names were known at a time before sporting celebrity had taken any kind of hold on the public. O'Toole's GA club was the heartbeat of the Dublin football team, usually providing a dozen players when Dublin were at their strongest. But O'Toole's also represented that intersection between politics and the GAA in real life. Their clubhouse also hosted Michael Collins' squad between operations. Tom Clark, one of the executed leaders of the 1916 Rising, was a member of O'Toole's. So was the playwright, Sean O'Casey, author of Shadow of a Gunman, Juno and the Paycock and The Plough and the Stars, a trilogy of acclaimed plays dealing with the Irish Revolutionary period through the lens of working-class Dublin. In 1912, Patrick Pearce, the future figurehead of the Rising, presented O'Casey with the banner for the Lawrence O'Toole Pipe Band. 73 O'Toole's members in total had fought in the Rising. Most of them were still involved in active service with the IRA. When Michael Collins needed men to carry out a last minute operation on the morning of Bloody Sunday, he went straight to O'Toole's men. Fighting and playing games were twin parts of the same identity, one inextricable from the other. So join us as we meet the Dublin football team that took the field at Croke Park on Bloody Sunday and find out how the roots of modern Dublin football were sown in its revolutionary past in the fourth episode of The Bloodied Field. By the time Tipperary had called out the Dublin footballers, like a prize fighter trying to goad their opponent into action at the beginning of November 1920, Dublin were beginning to finally make good on their enormous potential. 
Since 1914, Dublin had lost to the eventual All-Ireland champions three times in six seasons. Wexford had used Dublin as a stepping stone on their way to four successive All-Ireland titles. Another year, Dublin were shocked by Louth. Two Dublin players, Padder Smith and Paddy Lynch, died during the Spanish flu epidemic in the winter of 1918. But Dublin pulled together again for 1919 and finally did beat Wexford in the Leinster Championship. But even then, they were beaten by Kildare in the Leinster final. It was an inexplicable set of circumstances. Dublin had a large pool of players containing some of the most skillful in the country. They played football a little differently to everybody else. Instead of kicking the ball away as soon as they got it, Dublin players usually held on for a second to assess their options. Their forwards were fast and clever and brought some of the craft normally associated with an elusive soccer player. But still, they fell short of everyone's expectations in the same way as many Dublin teams through the coming decades. By 1920, Dublin hadn't won an All-Ireland title since 1908. They lost a challenge game to Tipperary in 1919, Michael Hogan's first game in Croke Park, and started 1920 with the same questions hanging over them. But they started this year like a whirlwind. Having won a couple of challenge games in fine style, Come On, the correspondent for Sport Newspaper, was happy to ramp up that old familiar hype. Huh, well no, little need be said of Dublin. There's probably not a team in Ireland with a better understanding, greater resource, steadier combination or in better practice than that which Captain Paddy MacDonald can now lead onto the field. They hadn't been champions for 12 years, yet Coman saw them as champions in waiting. The pressure was on to win something. While Gaelic games were disrupted all over the country in 1920, the GAA successfully steered the Leinster Football Championship through every obstacle that summer. Dublin met Kildare again in the Leinster final, mindful of the shock inflicted by Kildare on them in 1919, but also energised by two very good victories over them in challenge matches earlier in the year. And the final showcased everything that always made Dublin good and what now made them formidable. Having started slowly, Dublin gradually overwhelmed Kildare. All the big names emerged. Johnny MacDonald made a big save in the second half from George McGann. Stephen Sinnott, one of four brothers who played for O'Toole's, scored a point. Paddy MacDonald took control in the middle of the field. And then there was Frank Burke, through whom so much of Dublin's hopes were held and linked up so much of what linked Dublin and the IRA and the heritage of conflict around them. In time, Burke would be celebrated as the greatest exponent of hurling and football ever produced by Dublin. He would win five All-Ireland medals, three football and two hurling. Even being adopted and nurtured as a Dublin player, having been born and reared in Carberry County Kildare, reflected how the GA in Dublin was always underpinned by a strong foundation of outside influences. But more than all that, Burke was known as a genius footballer and a rebel fighter. Being a volunteer seemed his destiny. He had come to Dublin in 1909 to attend school at St Enda's in Rathfarnham, a bilingual school run by Patrick Pearce, where corporal punishment was outlawed and an idyllic version of Irish manhood was taught. 
As a footballer, Burke was already seen as a rare talent. Burke, daring as Cucullin, outwitting and prostrating some towering full-back, Pierce once wrote of him, having watched him play the game. As a rebel, Burke followed Pierce deeper into the volunteer movement and the idea of physical force republicanism. He was a steward at the Rotunda Rink in Dublin city centre when the Irish Volunteers held their inaugural meeting in November 1913. He joined a battalion of St Enda's students and alumni called Pierce's Own. Pierce himself presented Burke with his first rifle. In the months before the 1916 Rising, Burke spent his time making hand grenades and filling cartridges with shot. On Easter Monday, he boarded a tram from Rathfarnham armed and wearing a haversack, bandolier, knapsack and billy can he had bought the previous week. He gradually zigzagged his way through the city to the general post office on Sackville Street, modern day O'Connell Street, the headquarters of the Rising. He spotted a small open window at the corner of the building and sprinted across the road and dived in. Soon afterwards, he was sent to the roof to guard the tricolour raised earlier that day. After two days, he was sent downstairs to man a window at the front of the building. He stared for hours at the dead civilian on the road outside, clutching a white flag. With the battle lost and the situation growing desperate, Burke was among the last troops sent across Henry Street that rang alongside the GPO to mount a final stand. Having survived the hail of machine gun fire to cross the street, Burke huddled with the others, awaiting the final bayonet charge and inevitable death. He was 21. The last order came the following morning. All men with bayonets to assemble for a final charge down the barrels of the guns behind the barricade at the end of Moore Street. Burke peered out. The barricade was 50 yards away. I could see none of us reaching that far. Then, word filtered through the group. A truce had been arranged. To say I was glad and thankful to God would be putting it mildly. He was interned in Frongach and returned home to Carberry and Kildare on Christmas Eve 1916. Christmas candles in the window lighting his way. He was back hurling with Dublin by 1917 and teaching at St Enda's. Michael Collins asked him to join his squad as the War of Independence took hold, but Burke declined. That sort of work it wasn't his type of work. By 1920, he was a hero footballer, dancing around defenders like no other forward anywhere. Now, Dublin had a team capable of properly showcasing his brilliance. With Kildare beaten in the Leinster final, not many teams were expected to stop them. But then they were stopped in their tracks themselves by the war around them. Playing the All-Ireland football semi-final against Cavan proved impossible. But then, on Friday, September 24th, the GAA saw a gap. The game was set for Sunday, September 26th in Navan, just two days later. Dublin were happy to play, but Cavan were incensed. They had already wasted two weeks on a training camp before the originally scheduled date of September 12th. They knew two days was no time to prepare for Dublin, and they were right. The match itself drew a giant crowd to Navan, reflecting the appetite for any game anywhere 
among a population starved of matches. But the outcome was inevitable. Dublin won easily. The Sinnott brothers, John and Stephen, scored three goals between them. Frank Burke was everywhere. And Dublin won by 11 points. They were in an All-Ireland final now. But they had no one to play. As Johnny MacDonald made his way from home to Croke Park that Sunday morning, Frank Burke was riding the tram from Rathfarnham into Dublin city centre with his friend Brian Joyce. The same man who whispered in his ear that a truce had been settled as he crouched with his rifle during the last moments of the rising. Burke saw a newspaper placard and a headline about the killing of some British agents that morning. The tram hummed with the same conversation. There'll be a raid someplace today, Burke said to Joyce. Neither of them ever thought of Croke Park. When Burke arrived at Croke Park, slipping through the crowd and making for the changing rooms, he saw Luke O'Toole, the General Secretary of the GAA, and the most powerful single individual in the organisation. He was talking to some IRA men. The players were already there, pulling on their sky blue jerseys. Tom Innes, one of Johnny MacDonald's comrades that morning on Upper Mount Street, came to the door of the dressing room, looking for Paddy MacDonald, the Dublin captain. They talked about the events of the morning and whether the game should be played. O'Toole's always provided stewards to help around Croke Park on match day, but all of them had been pulled out. Would the players heed the warnings? Paddy MacDonald shrugged. Twelve of the twenty Dublin players in that dressing room were O'Toole's men. There was no decision for any of them to make. No one knew what to expect, but they'd take whatever was coming. Outside on the road, Luke O'Toole had a few minutes to make one of the biggest decisions of his life. The IRA men, Sean Russell, Harry Colley and Tom Kilcoyne, had brought word of a possible raid on Croke Park by police or military or some combination of both. A Dublin Metropolitan Police Constable had tipped Kilcoyne off. A combined force of auxiliary and military was the word coming down. O'Toole met them with Jack Shouldice of the Leinster Council. The IRA message was simple. Call the game off. Imagine if the machine guns opened fire, said Russell. What an appalling thing. But no one truly expected that. O'Toole instead was troubled by the idea that the GAA might be seen to be influenced by a violent act that morning that had, on the surface, nothing to do with them. There was also the question of clearing out so many people from Croke Park in a short space of time. Could that potentially create a greater threat to safety than the arrival of the police at the game? In the end, O'Toole agreed to a halfway house arrangement. The turnstiles would be closed. No one else would enter. The IRA men wished him well and left. As they walked along Clonliffe Road, they saw crowds swelling at one turnstile. They were getting angry. No one knew why the gates were being closed, not even the turnstile operator himself. He walked away, then he returned in a temper, swearing at the IRA men when he saw them. He opened the turnstiles. The crowds continued to swarm in. Russell, Kilcoyne and Collie looked at each other. There was nothing more anyone could do. 
Join us next time on the Bloodied Field podcast to explore in more detail the GAA of 1920, the impossible challenges and choices facing Luke O'Toole long before Bloody Sunday, and the final hours leading up to the massacre in Croke Park. Thanks for listening. The Bloodied Field podcast is written and produced by me, Michael Foley, and edited by Andrew Foley. We had two special guests on the show. Kildare footballer Kevin Feely played the great Dublin player Frank Burke and Paul Kiley voiced Come On, the correspondent for Sport Newspaper. You can find us and follow this full series of podcasts at gaa.ie forward slash bloody Sunday or on Spotify. You can also contact us on Twitter at bloodiedfieldp1 or email us at bloodiedfieldpodcast at gmail.com. And if you've enjoyed this episode, please do spread the word. This is a story we feel everyone needs to hear.